chapter 1, verse 1. Acts 1, 1. Right? Acts 1, 1. Some handouts out there. Acts 1, 1. I should get there too. Whoa. And the book of Acts is, um, it's got 28 chapters, 1,007 verses, 24,229 words. The author is Luke, and um, he is writing it. Uh, he's writing Acts. You see, the book of Acts ends with Paul's first ministry to Rome, uh, so around 65 AD. Uh, I didn't give you the range, Josh, I know, but I... The date I have is around 65 A.D. is about the approximate writing of the book. Uh, Acts 1.1 really cements the fact that it is Luke because it goes back to the Gospel of Luke. It says, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. So the author is referencing the Gospel that he already wrote. If you remember from a few weeks ago, that was addressed to Theophilus. So he's saying, hey, Theophilus, here's... Here's, you know, part two, so to speak. So it just reminds us that the author is Luke. And uh, I want you to notice, please, and this is going to be a theme throughout the book, that the gospel of Luke, he says, the former treatise is what Jesus began. So the gospel of Luke, right, the gospel of Luke is what Jesus Christ began. That, that's a key word, right? That's what Jesus Christ began. Acts by Luke is what Jesus Christ continued, right? So Acts is the continuation, right? So he's saying, hey, the work kept going. And um, the Gospel of Luke is going to record the life of Jesus in the flesh, and the book of Acts by Luke is going to record the works of Jesus in the Spirit. So even though his body is taken up, in the first chapter, the work of Jesus Christ in His Spirit is what's going to continue. So the former treatise is what Jesus Christ began. The book of Acts is how Jesus Christ continued. And really the emphasis of the book of Acts is this risen and ascended Lord is not gone. He is still living and working by His Spirit through the disciples, through the apostles. And that's really the key message that you see on your sheet there. It's the Acts of the Apostles. Right? That's the title. It's not just the book of Acts. It's the Acts of the Apostles. It's the work of Jesus Christ through His Spirit working in the lives of His apostles. So that's the big idea to take away. So you'll notice in Acts 1.13, if you're there, notice the book of Acts begins with apostles in Jerusalem. Right? List them all right there. Uh, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, uh, Simon, uh, Judas, um, right? They're all continuing with one accord in prayer. They're in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the Jewish center because the beginning of the book of Acts has a Jewish emphasis and a Jewish audience. But if you go to Acts 28 and you go to the end of the book, last verse of the book, we're not in Jerusalem anymore. Acts 28, right? You see, it says of Paul, Acts 28:31, he's preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. So the book of Acts begins with apostles in Jerusalem, the Jewish center, because it's a Jewish audience, and the book of Acts ends with an apostle in Rome, which is the center of the world at that time, because now it's a Gentile audience. Now the gospel is going to every creature. And we'll talk more about the book of Acts, how it transitions in a little bit. But the book of Acts ends, right? Acts 28, 31, it ends, but do you see how it ends? It ends with preaching, right? That I-N-G word means it's progressive. It's still going on. Like if you say, I am swimming, it's happening. So even though the canon closes and the book ends and there's no scripture to add, it ends with the work continuing, right? He's preaching, he's teaching, because the Lord's Spirit is still moving, right? That message is still going out. We're still preaching. We're going to preach. We're preaching now. We're going to have somebody preach tomorrow night at the rescue mission. We'll go do some preaching of sorts, maybe on Saturday morning. Right? The preaching. Some guys went out the other morning, yesterday morning. The preaching still continues. The teaching still continues. Even though the words were finished writing, written down, the preaching and the teaching is still going on. 
You got that? The work is still continuing. The apostle is preaching. That message is still going forth. The big thing I want you to see, this will save you a lot of pain. The book of Acts is not a doctrinal book. It's a historical book. All right? If you try to take doctrine out of the book of Acts, you're going to have a hard time. Because the book of Acts is not doctrinal. The book of Acts, of course, we find doctrine in it. But the book of Acts is what we call a transitional book. It's one of three transitional books. And it's transitional because we're going to map it out later. If you follow the book of Acts, the doctrines are changing they're not fixed until you get to the end of the book because there's an opportunity for Israel to get in and then the opportunity is taken away and then it's turned to the Gentiles. So things are kind of moving in flux in the book of Acts and you put your finger on a spot in the book of Acts and try to take that moment from history and pull it out to be a doctrine that you're going to build your life on, you may have some problems. <laughs> Because I could show you these four different ways people are getting the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. Which one are you going to pick to build your doctrine on? you got to see what God's doing. The first book of doctrine for the church is Romans. That's the next book. And that's what we'll hopefully, God willing, sink our teeth into next week. The Lord willing, I'd be happy to go to heaven, but if, if next week comes, right? But the book of Romans is doctrine, right? You know, th then we get into the Pauline epistles. But the book of Acts is historical. It's the acts of the apostles. It's what the apostles did, what they were doing, how God was using them, and things are changing, all right? The book, the transitional books are, right, Matthew, and in Matthew, we're going from Gentile to Jew, right? They've been in, they've been in captivity, and God's bringing them back out, and He's turning His attention back to Israel and bringing them a Messiah. The book of Acts, they're going now from Jew to Gentile. I don't know what that word is. It's supposed to be Gentile, but I don't have time to fix it, right? And then the book of Hebrews, we're going back from Gentile to Jew again. They're transitional books. They're dangerous books. They're not sure-footing be very careful when you navigate those books. A lot of your heresies will come out of the book of Acts. A lot of the wrong thinking that people have in the church today, they got it from the book of Acts because they grabbed a moment and made it a doctrine, didn't put it in context, didn't rightly divide it. But these books right here, Matthew, Acts, and Hebrews, are the most difficult and dangerous books in your Bible because they're transitions. Things are changing. And if you try to, you know, you try to freeze a moment that's changing and make that a foundation, it's a shaky foundation. So we're going to talk about, we're going to try to put the book of Acts together for you today so it's not so scary anymore. Acts chapter 1, let's go back there. Uh, let's look at a key verse here. Acts 1.8 is when Jesus gives the order and direction of the work. The order and direction of which God is going to work, right? It says, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. That's a message for another day that you really can't do anything without the Holy Spirit's help. But that's a, I'll just slip that in there. But that's a message for another day we should all remember. That, hey, apostles, you're not going to do anything until my Spirit comes and enables you and empowers you and fills you. Um, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, that's where it starts, and in all Judea, that's outside of that, and Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. That's the order and direction of the work. You see God follows that order in the book of Acts. And that's really the order that even a church should go, right? You should take care of your Jerusalem first. And then you kind of expand out to maybe some people outside your Jerusalem or your Judea. And then you kind of find some other people that are maybe a little different culture than you, the Samaritans. And then if God willing, then you go out to the uttermost, which are people that are very far removed from you. And that's kind of like the way even a church grows and develops in terms of their, in terms of their outreach. And then Jesus Christ is pictured as the worker. We're going to talk a lot about the work that goes on in the book of Acts. Who's behind it all? Jesus Christ through his spirit. He's the worker in the book of Acts. So the breakdown, I have it there for you. It's pretty simple to remember. Uh, it's a nice breakdown. One to seven is the Lord at work in Jerusalem, right? We've got, um, that goes from Pentecost to the death of Stephen. And in those first seven chapters, the door is still open to Israel. 
the offer of the kingdom of heaven, that literal political kingdom, it's still on the table. They've rejected John the Baptist. They've rejected Jesus Christ. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do on the cross. And God the Father says, all right, I'm going to give them one more shot. And they got seven chapters to still repent and receive Jesus as the Messiah. And Acts chapter 7, at the end, something changes. And from Acts 8 to 20, the Lord is now working not so much in Jerusalem. He scatters them in the beginning of chapter 8. He's working more in Judea and Samaria. He's getting outside of Jerusalem now. We see the persecution by Paul. We see the conversion of Paul. We see the early ministry of Paul. And the door is closing on Israel. And you see him turning to the Gentiles. And it's, you know, God changes the times and the seasons. You don't go from winter to spring overnight, right? So you see, something happens in Acts 7, and from the rest of the book of Acts, you start to see this turn being made. And in 21 to 28, the Lord is now at work even unto the uttermost. We're out there in Rome, and you see Paul's ministry to his imprisonment, and the door, by the end of Acts 28, the door is now slammed shut on Israel, and the church of the New Testament is established, and God's going in that different direction. So, Let's break, I thought the way to approach this book today would be just to break down these sections so you can kind of orient, orient yourself. Orient? Yeah. yeah, that's the word, right? Sorry. Yourself properly. I got a lot of words sometimes. I don't know if I'm saying the right ones. So in Acts 1-7, let's break this section down. The door is still open to Israel. The kingdom is still offered. So let's look at some things, right? Look at Acts 1-6. Acts 1-6 shows you the focus, the direction, the intention of the Jewish apostles. They're not thinking about you. They're not thinking about Gentiles. They're not thinking about vicarious atonement. They're not thinking about, you know, getting people saved. They got one thing on their mind, Acts 1.6. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? That's a key, key verse. Because that shows you where Peter and James and John, that shows you where their mind was at. Those Jewish apostles wanted the literal, political, physical kingdom of heaven. Hey God, Jesus, you're going to bring that political kingdom back? Is David going to come reign with us? Are we going to be the head and not the tail again? You're going to finally crush Rome and throw off the shackles of Rome? Huh? 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 That's where their focus is. And in Acts chapter 2, and it's hard to see that because... We're so, oh, they're the apostles, right? They want people to get saved. I don't know. God had to knock Peter over the head to let him go into a Gentile's house, right? They weren't thinking the way you're thinking today, right? We always think today is the way it always was. It wasn't always like this, right? It was a different economy. It was a different focus. You see in the first chapter, they're thinking, hey, you rose again, Jesus? Okay, okay. When's it coming? When's the millennium coming? When's the kingdom coming? And then it says, go to chapter 2, verse 5. Then we get to Pentecost, when the church is born, right? And in Acts 2.5, it says, And there were dwelling at Jerusalem, what's the next word? Jews. Jews. Devout men out of every nation under heaven. On that day of Pentecost, when Peter gives that great sermon, it's not to the whole world. It's to Jews at Jerusalem. Devout Jews. Jews that were born nationally and Jewish proselytes who knew that, hey, Pentecost was one of the three feasts. I had to get my butt up to Jerusalem to worship. So they're all converging on Jerusalem to worship. And that's when God just births the church and they go out there preaching. But they're preaching a different gospel than we're preaching right now. They're not preaching, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. They're not. They're preaching, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins. It's a different message. It's a different focus. Now go to Acts 2.36. You see that the audience is Jewish? You see that, right? I'm not trying to put any words in your mind here. We're just trying to rightly divide this. Watch 36. Here's the conclusion of Peter's message. Therefore, let every creature know. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, these Jews and Jewish proselytes listening, and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Corporate, what are we going to do? 
We're a nation that just crucified their Messiah. We committed deicide. What do we do? We just killed our God in the flesh. We killed the Messiah. What do we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise, remember, the promise, Luke 24, Acts 1, he talks about the promise of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is unto you and to your children, and to all that are far off, these are all talking about Jewish people, Jews that are scattered abroad, even as many as the Lord our God shall call, and with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Judgment is coming upon this generation that killed their Messiah. Get saved before that judgment falls upon you. All right, let's break this down. Verse 36 shows us very clearly, and by the way, this is not manhandling the Bible. This is rightly dividing the word of truth. If you don't do this, you're going to get messed up. The book of Acts, people have hung themselves on the book of Acts. More people have gone to hell on Acts 2.38 than maybe any other verse in the Bible. And it says right there in Acts 2.36, look at it, Peter is preaching to pork-abstaining, bearded, Sabbath-keeping Jews. There isn't a Gentile with an earshot that's really standing around listening to anything that Peter is saying. His focus is Jewish, the Pentecost is Jewish, the feast is Jewish, the audience is Jewish, and the message is kingdom. Look at verse 37. Notice the question. What shall we do? What does our nation do? What do we as a Jewish people do? It's a different question than Acts 16.30. You want to look over at Acts 16.30? When Paul, under grace, is speaking to a Gentile, a Philippian jailer in Macedonia, you know what that Philippian jailer asks? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's a different question than what shall we do? You see, that Jew or that Jewish proselyte on the day of Pentecost is saying, <gasps> We killed the Jewish Messiah. We killed the Messiah. What do we do? Nobody's asking how to get saved in Acts chapter 2. Nobody's asking how to get born again in Acts chapter 2. Peter just told them, you killed the Lord in Christ. You killed your Messiah. What's their response? <gasps> what do we do? Right? What do we do? Acts chapter 16, there's a jailer sitting there. He just watched the whole jail rocking and rolling, and he sees Paul and Silas singing praises to God, and he turns around and says, Sirs, what must I I do to be saved? That's the question we ask now, right? It's an individual focus, not a national focus, not a corporate focus, an individual focus, and it's not what do we do, it's what do I do to get saved? A very different focus in Acts 16.31. Go back to Acts 2, and please notice now that the, the admonition is repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Get baptized for the remission. Get baptized to get yourself ready to for, for the forgiveness that God's going to give to this nation. He's picking it up where John the Baptist left off. Amen, amen. Right? They were getting baptized for the remission of sins. John had a baptism of repentance, and Peter's saying a very similar song. Repent! and be baptized for the remission. Acts chapter 3, he says, look at verse 19. Acts 3.19. Look at Acts 3.19. He says it again to them. Repent ye therefore. Turn. Get right with God. Prepare to you the way of the Lord. Prepare to meet your Messiah. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. When the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and he shall send Jesus Christ, which before is preached unto you, is that our message now? <laughs> right? If we grab somebody, raise their hand, we don't take them in the art room and say, okay, repent now, so when Jesus comes, he'll forgive your sins. We don't, the message is, trust Jesus Christ now, and he will forgive your sins, because he's paid for them already. But that's not what he's preaching, Peter. He's saying, repent, show God that you want the Messiah, show God that you're sorry for your sin, and you know what? He'll send Jesus, and He'll blot out your transgressions and take them away. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins, corporately, Romans chapter 11, when He restores Israel. That's the focus in the beginning of Acts, right? Do you see that? Right? It's a, it's a different... Oh, I was quiet. That scared me. All right, do you, you see that, though, a little bit? 
It sounds like John the Baptist is a little bit picking up John the Baptist's mantle a little bit, right? For the remission, and then you'll get the Holy Spirit when Jesus comes. That's not what we preach. We preach when you get saved now, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit right there. You get all the Holy Spirit the day you get saved. That's what all of Paul's writings say. That's not what Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. Things that are different are not the same. They're a different message. Now, in that little window of Acts 1 to 7, the Lord gives Israel six messages. He gives them five by Peter and one by Stephen. Right? They get a lot of opportunities to repent. So let's go to Acts chapter 7. Let's see where the failure actually happens here. Now here's the last one. Here's the one by by Stephen. Here's the conclusion of his message. It's a wonderful way to give an invitation. I should try this sometime. It's really gracious, sweet. You know, somebody, somebody's playing a piano, you know, just as I am is playing on the piano, and he's saying, you know, let's head bowed and eyes closed, and, you know, I just want you to take a moment now and just connect with your Creator and really meditate upon the truths that I've shared with you today, dearly beloved. No, he says, ye stiff-necked <laughs> and uncircumcised in heart and ears, Ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them, which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now, you see it, the betrayers and murderers. That's the emphasis of all this preaching. You killed the Messiah, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So, Notice here, God had given Israel three big opportunities to get the kingdom of heaven. John the Baptist is strike one. John the Baptist comes speaking on behalf of the Father. He brings this message from the Father, prepare you the way of the Lord, make straight, you know, make straight a highway for our God. What do they do to John the Baptist? They cut his head off. That's strike one. Strike two is Jesus Christ. He is the Son. What did they do to the Son? They crucified Him. Now they get one more shot, because on the cross the Son said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that's a great verse, a great emotional verse. We could apply it to ourselves. But what's the immediate application of that verse? Hey, all this nation down here, them, they, they don't know what they're doing, killing me, Father. Give them one more shot. And he gives him one more shot. Stephen is strike three. Because in 751, Stephen is speaking for the Holy Spirit. And God, Jesus, warned them, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, not going to be forgiven. So they then they, they reject the Holy Spirit. They resist the Holy Spirit. So much for John Calvin, right? They resist the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Isn't that something? Let me just get on that soapbox for a second. I mean, if God predestinated people to, and His will is irresistible... And he wanted Israel to come like little chickadees under his wings and be saved. How do you resist the Holy Ghost? Careful, Reformed brother. I see some smoke coming out of your ears. You might be thinking. All right, just think about that, right? The doctrines of grace. You don't know what you're talking about. All right, so John the Baptist, Stephen speaks for the Holy Spirit. That's Israel's last chance. Now, notice in 755, very important moment. He says, I see Jesus standing. That's an important moment. Now, the conventional way to teach that is, oh, he was standing to receive the martyr. That's nice. That's, if Jesus had to stand every time he received somebody who died in the Lord, he'd be up and down a million times a day, right? I mean, he'd be up and down all the time. Like, you know, people are saved, dying all over the world. Every time he gets up, he's got to receive them. No, that's not why he's standing. He's standing because it signifies that right there, his return could have taken place. Right there could have been the advent. 
right there, the Bible says, The Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool. The Lord stands to judge. When he stands up, he's standing up to judge. And him standing up is a signification that the millennium, I'm sorry, the, the advent could have happened right there. Right? That's a, if you get that, that was worth the price of admission tonight. If you can get that Acts 7 is Jesus standing and right there could have been the advent, you got more than 99% of the Christian world today. Acts 7, the number 7 is the number of completion. Because 1 to 7, by the end of 7, God is finished pleading with that nation. God's offer of the kingdom is about to be deferred a couple of thousand years. Acts 8, 8 is the number of new beginning. God is doing something new. God is doing something different. Starting in Acts chapter 8. Got to watch the, the numbers of your Bible. What's happening in chapter 8? God starts turning to the Gentiles. Chapter 8, we get Samaritans getting saved in chapter 8. That's, those are half-breeds, half-Jew, half-Gentile. Right? Chapter 8, we get the first full-blooded Gentile in the Ethiopian eunuch. He gets saved at the end of Acts chapter 8. God starts turning. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. Right? Now let's go to the second section, Acts 8 to 20. So at Acts 1 to 7, the offer is made, and God starts closing the door. Acts 8 to 20, now the door is closing for Israel, and the church is being called out by God and established. Let's look at Acts 8, chapter, verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Where do we start in Acts chapter 8? A revival among the half-Jew, half-Gentiles. We start with revival among the half-breeds. That's how God starts chapter 8. Chapter 9. What happens in chapter 9? A new apostle is saved. Paul, who is then Saul, is saved, and he's ultimately called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 10. 10 is the number. Oh, let's do this. So we got 8. We got a revival. 9. We got an apostle, 10, we got a good Italian boy saved, a full-blooded Gentile saved, 10 is the number of the Gentiles, I know the Ethiopian eunuch gets saved in Acts 8, but he's a Jewish proselyte, here we got a legit goy who's not a Jewish proselyte, a Gentile, an Italian is saved, uh, Cornelius and look what happens in Acts 10.44. Watch this. I'll show you how the things are changing. Acts 10.44. And, and Cornelius is just an honest man. There's another thing that kind of sticks a finger in, in Calvin's eye. Amen. Because Amen. the angel says, hey, Cornelius, your prayers are heard before God. Hmm. Cornelius is not saved. Right. He's not born again. He doesn't have the Holy Spirit. He's not a child of God. But God's listening to him plead. God sees his heart and knows he wants the truth. So much for dead men can't pray. And dead. All those silly analogies the Calvinists make up to try to outsmart the Bible. Just read the Bible. You'll be okay. The Bible says it. So here's a man, honest Gentile, seeking God the best way he knows, and God says, I'm listening, and sends a messenger, and sends a preacher, right? So much for being so dead that you can't seek God, right? So much for total depravity, Johnny. Sorry, no. Here's a guy lost in sin, wicked, I know, but God's drawing him, and he's responding, and he's seeking more light, and God gives him more light. And in Acts 10, 44, thank you for indulging me. I, I want to kick that doctrine every time I smell it. I just want to kick it around because it makes me sick. Acts 10, 44. If it wasn't wrapped in such a pious garb, I wouldn't be so upset by it. Acts 10, 44. While Peter yet spake these words, he's just talked about Jesus Christ, if you want to look at 43, right? To him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. And before Peter gets a chance to mess it up and talk about baptism, the Holy Spirit interrupts the message. And it says, While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all of them which heard the word. Please notice that the Gentile is not baptized before receiving the Holy Ghost. Amen. He gets it when he hears the word and believes. Amen. That's different than Acts chapter 2. 
Acts chapter 2, verse 38, that Jew was told you're to be baptized in order to receive the Holy Ghost. Here, there's no baptism happening, just faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, and this Gentile hears and believes, and God gives them the Holy Ghost without baptism. Which one you gonna build a doctrine on? You got people getting the Holy Ghost two different ways from the same preacher. You see how it's slippery, the book of Acts? If you don't look at it through the lens of Paul, you're going to get all bungled and messed up. Now look at verses 45 and 46. And they of the circumcision, the Jews, which believed, right, so we have some believing Jews here, were astonished. Why? Why are they shocked? Because they had not seen this before. There's no preaching to Gentiles. There's no conversion like this. The stuff we take for granted, they never seen this. They weren't worried about this. They're thinking kingdom. Now a Gentile's getting the Holy Spirit? I thought that was only for us, right? The promise is unto you and to your children. That's what he told them in Acts chapter 2. Now here's a Gentile getting saved, a Gentile getting the Holy Spirit. They're scratching their heads, which were astonished as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. Every dog needs to say amen right there. Amen, <laughs> amen. right? For they heard them speak with tongues... And magnify God. Right there you see the second of three instances of tongues in the Bible. Now you might bump into some well-meaning, Pentecostal, charismatic brethren, who I don't doubt they love the Lord, but if you hear them talk long enough, you think that tongues is all over the Bible. And tongues is the, is, is the be-all, end-all. And if you're not speaking in tongues, you don't have the initial evidence of the Holy Ghost and all that other stuff, it only happens three times in the book of Acts. You only have people speaking in tongues three times in the whole Bible in the book of Acts. In the history of the church, there's three recorded instances in the book of Acts. And it's always for an unbelieving Jew. Amen. Every time. I'll show you why. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1. What are tongues all about? Let's, let's just do a little... Let's let the Bible define terms. 1 Corinthians 1.22. This is a key verse. You don't have this verse underlined, highlighted, I don't know, tattooed on the inside of your eyelids. Those are tricky. It says, for the Jews require a sign. That's an important verse. The Jews require a sign. Okay? Jews were taught since Exodus 4 to see a visible manifestation of God's supernatural power to confirm the word of the man speaking to them. They were taught that from the founding of their nation under Moses. How are they going to believe the word which I speak? Throw your rod down. Put your hand into your bosom. Right? He gives them signs, visible manifestations of God's supernatural power that they could see. And the Jew requires a sign. God doesn't fault them for it. They've been taught to look for them. Go to chapter 14 of the same book. Chapter 14 of the same book. I'll look at verse, down verse 22. Nothing like a Bible to clear up a seminary education. 1 Corinthians 14, 22. Wherefore tongues are for a sign. Jews require a sign. Tongues are a sign. Not to them that believe... We walk by faith, not by sight. Amen. But to them that believe not. So tongues are a sign for unbelieving Jews. Acts chapter 2, what have we got? They talk in tongues in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Why? Because the Jews did not believe that Jesus was the Christ. He said, this same Jesus the Lord hath made Lord in Christ. That's the first time. Acts chapter 10, the Jews did not believe the Gentiles could get the Holy Ghost. So what's he have those Gentiles do? Talk in tongues. Show those Jews that you got the Holy Ghost, just like we did. Acts chapter 19 is the last time somebody talks in tongues, and they're Jewish disciples that don't even believe there is a Holy Ghost. So he says, unto what then were you baptized? Oh, unto John's baptism, and then Paul expounds some things, and they get baptized and get the Holy Ghost. Right? They get the Holy Ghost like they should, right? And they speak with tongues. Every instance of tongues in the Bible are Jews who don't believe something that God wants them to know. And tongues are a sign to show them and confirm that what's being told is the truth. And if you look at chapter 13, 
1 Corinthians 13, verse number 8. What does it say? It says at the end of the middle of the verse, whether there be tongues, they shall cease. God said, when the door closes on Israel, the tongues are going to stop, the signs are going to stop. That's what's going to happen. Why is it that Paul could heal guys in the beginning of Acts, and by 2 Timothy 4, he's got to leave, uh, 1 Timothy 5.23, I think, he's got to leave Trophimus and might lead him sick. Why is he giving Timothy medical advice? if it was just the healing was still going on. Because by the time he's writing 2 Timothy, the door is closed on Israel. Acts 28 has happened, the door is slammed shut, and the signs are dissipated out of the scene. Now you see some of those signs early on because the door is not completely shut yet. But he says tongues are going to stop. Now, many people still think they're going on, and I'm not saying they don't love the Lord, but they're not according to the Scripture. I say that with grace and charity, of course. Uh, go to Acts 11. Let's keep going. I think I'm just trying to give you, I'm just trying to orient you here. Uh, the book of, Acts is, book of Acts is in flux. It's changing. It's moving. It's the doctrines aren't fixed. Now, Acts 11, 26, now we see we're, we're in the thick now. Of the, we're on our, uh, the, the Gentiles are being called out now. In Acts eleven twenty six. we have right there the label Christians. First given to a Gentile church at Antioch. The disciples were first called Christians at in Antioch. That's in Syria. That's a Gentile place, right? And from Acts 13 to 20, right? So I could say 11. We got the word Christians thrown out. It's actually, it's actually a derogatory term in the beginning. It's not a term they put on themselves. It's a term the world put on them, right? And then Acts 13 to 20, we have our three missionary trips. And Paul goes on three missionary journeys in Acts 13 to 20. And those three missionary journeys, he's establishing churches to Gentiles, going to that uttermost. Peter's going to go to the Jews at Jerusalem, and Paul and Barnabas, they're going out to the Gentiles, Acts 13 to 20. Three missionary trips in there. Look at Acts 13, 9. Look at Acts 13, 9. Please notice in Acts 13.9, watch this really carefully. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, please notice that the first instance when Saul is called Paul is in a parenthesis. You know what the church age is? It's a parenthesis in the work of God. It's Jew, 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 kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. Church age, it's like a little parenthesis. And then he's going to pick it back up and it's going to be kingdom, 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 kingdom. We're, Paul is the apostle in the pause. And it's interesting, the first time he's called Paul, it's in a parenthetical thought. Because that's what the church age is. It's a parenthetical. Meaning you could take that out and the whole thing can go right back. If I put a parenthesis in a sentence... What's before the parentheses and after the parentheses could just connect and keep right on going. And guess what? When God pulls the church out of here, we're going to go right back to that kingdom program Amen. as if we weren't even here, so to speak. And Paul's the apostle of the pause. Notice he's a rebel for God. He's a rebel for a good cause. He's the 13th apostle sent out to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 13. Interesting, right? I know you say Matthias, but Matthias is still one of the 12, right? Because he's replacing Judas. Now go to book of verse 46. Now, Paul had a burden for, Gen for Jews. He went to the Jews first. He'd run to the synagogue and try to give them the word of God. But in Acts 13, 46, you see what he's doing. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, to the Jew first, out of privilege, right? The Jew first got the gospel out of privilege because they were God's chosen people. So he says, it was necessary that you got the word of God first, but seeing he put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. Please go to Acts chapter 20. and Let's look at verse 36, which I think is the last verse in the book. Nope, not the first verse. One of the last verses in the book of Acts chapter 20, I should say. Now, not everybody's going to see this, 
But if your Bible has paragraph markings in them, like it should, sometimes editors take them out. But if it's got those little paragraph markings that look like this, right? This is the last paragraph marking in your Bible. Right? The last paragraph marking in your Bible is Acts 20, 36. See, why, what does a paragraph do? Well, when you write something, the paragraph is when you start a new thought. Okay? So the last paragraph marker in the Bible is here, Paul saying goodbye to the elders from the church in Ephesus. Why? Because the church has now been established. Ephesus is the mature church. And there's not another paragraph mark in your Bible because the thought and the work that God started there is still continuing unto this day. God has not stopped that thought, closed that thought, shut that thought. It's still going. What thought God started right there as the church is now established, we're living in that thought. We're living in that paragraph. We're living in that. See how every word, every jot and every tittle is important? God said, one jot and one tittle shall no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Ephesus is the last church Paul visits, and it's the first church mentioned in Revelation 2. So we have here, as far as God is concerned, the beginning of church history. Because it's where Paul stops, there's the last paragraph marking, and then when you go to Revelation 2 and you see all those seven churches, which is a prophetic view of church history, the first one's Ephesus. So here's the church established, and real church history is now beginning to unveil and unfold before our eyes. That makes sense? All right. Acts 21 to 28, this is going to be interesting. Paul loses his freedom, right? He goes to minister, and he's ministering in Jerusalem, and he ends up in Rome. Let's break this down a little bit. Why does Paul lose his freedom? Acts 21, 26. Paul loses his freedom because of compromise. Paul says, my life is a pattern for the church. You know what's going to do us in? Compromise. That's what did Paul in, compromise. And it's religious compromise. Because of his burdens. Be very careful of your burdens. Paul had such a burden for the Jews, he was willing to even disobey the Holy Spirit and transgress what God, didn't, what God told him to do. He goes beyond what God told him to do because he had such a burden. Be very careful of your burdens. So much for burdens. Better just to obey what God said. Amen. Right? We all have burdens, right? But the only guy I see with a real burden gets himself in trouble with burdens. Now, we use this vernacular, right, in the church. Well, I have a burden for China, and I have a burden for Laos, and I have a burden for Africa. Okay, that's good. I know what we mean when we say that, but be very careful of your burdens. I don't know if I ever got a burden. I just thought, okay, there's, there's no church over there. We should probably go over there. I don't know if I had this burning calling. I don't know what it was. Like, you just do what God tells you to do in front of you. I don't know. Paul had a burden for the Jews, and God sent him to the Gentiles, Right? And then when he transgressed that and God tried to say, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem, he goes to Jerusalem and he's never free again. Be careful of your burdens. Just, just be mindful of them. Sometimes a burden can overwhelm you so much that you don't hear what God is saying to you. And, and it was a well-intentioned burden. He says, I wish that I could myself were cursed for my kinsmen. Yep. He was willing to go to hell. I'm not willing to go to hell for anybody. Amen. Paul, I mean, I will maybe die for you, okay, because I'm going to go to heaven. But you're telling me I'm going to go to hell if you go to heaven? I don't know if I could take that deal. Paul's like, I would like to, I'm willing to go to hell for the Jews. You say, what a burden. I don't know. He ended up disobeying God because he was so, (gasps) Jews, 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 right? God was like, that's not the way I'm moving, Paul. All right, that's just a thought. Notice verse 26. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself. Paul was pure already, wasn't he? What's he doing purifying himself? He's putting himself in bondage. The man who wrote Galatians, the man who said, be not entangled again with a yoke of bondage, is now putting himself in bondage. Why? Because he had a burden. He winds up losing his liberty. Stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Why didn't Paul practice what he preached? Right? 
Acts 27 is an amazing chapter. Acts 27 is a picture of the church age where we're living right now. Because what we've got in Acts 27 is we've got the Apostle Paul who pictures the church. He told us he was a model of the church, a pattern of the church. Paul is on an Alexandrian ship being brought back to Rome. And brethren, that is where the church is today. They are on an Alexandrian ship being lured back to Mother Rome. I'll break it down for you just a little bit. Verse number six. And there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing into Italy, and he put us therein. Paul, that gets on an Alexandrian ship. You know where all of your modern Bibles come from? Alexandria. The body of Christ is riding in an Alexandrian ship with false versions, with readings from Alexandrian manuscripts like Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, with Alexandrian truths from the school that was down there in Alexandria, Egypt. We'll talk more about that next month in Discipleship too. And those are the Bibles that are steering Christians today, like Paul was on an Alexandrian ship at the end of his life. Most of the church age, we didn't have this problem. It's at the end, since 1881, we've got this Alexandrian influx. And it's not till Acts 27, which is near the end of this book, that we see Paul in this predicament. You You know what those Bibles are luring people back to? Mother Rome. You know how many Christians today are converting to Catholicism that were in so called evangelical churches? That don't compute to me. But where would they get that stuff from? I don't know, you watch those Bible versions, you watch the changes in modern versions. They line up with Mother Rome. They're trying to bring us back, and you don't realize that Eli and I met a guy many years ago. Remember that guy on the ferry? Remember that guy on the ferry? They got a whole ministry to try to get guys like you back in the Catholic Church. They got tracts, they got booklets, they got Bibles, they got pamphlets, they got a whole ministry because you're the estranged brother. They see you as the estranged brother, the prodigal son. And they just want to bring you back to the father's house. Oh, they got it all, man. They got it all. They got all the, they got all the fixings for you. They want to bring you back, estranged son, back into the fold of Mother Rome. And those false versions are part of the problem because they're twisting the doctrines and making it from saved to being saved and trying to get you in this progressive salvation, which is really what the Catholic Church teaches you, that nobody can know for sure. I'm not hating on anything. I'm just being real with you. That's what's going on right now in 2023. Verse 11. Watch what else has happened in the church age at at the end. All right. It says, Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship. More than those things which were spoken by Paul. Paul's authority is lost. You see that? Nobody listens to Paul anymore. They want to go to the Sermon on the Mount. They want to go to the book of Hebrews. What about Paul's authority in the church? He's the apostle, the minister, and the teacher of the Gentiles. He's my cornerstone. He's my blueprint for the church. But nobody's listening to him anymore. That's why the Bible's a hot mess to most people. And verse number 13. And when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, loosing thence, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, there arose against it a tempestuous wind called Eurocladon. And when the ship was caught and could not bear up into the wind, we let her drive. Notice lastly that it's tossed with wind. What does the Bible say of Christians? We shouldn't be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, Ephesians 4. The church of the last days is. They don't know if Jesus is the Son of God. Is He all God? Is He all man? Is He this? Is He that? You know, they don't know anything. They're tossed. In verse number 20, you want to see the fruit of this? The fruit of Alexandrian ships and a lack of Pauline authority and a lack of sound doctrine being tossed around? Verse 20, And when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared and no small tempest lay on us, all hope that we should be saved was then taken away. You know how many Christians out there don't even know if they're saved? Don't even know for sure that they can know for sure that they're saved? Why? Where was that hope stolen from? They got the wrong book, they got the wrong cornerstone, and they got the wrong spirit driving them. And all that hope that we enjoy, sealed unto the day of redemption, all those promises that we get from Paul and the right scripture and the right spirit, they don't have that. 
They know Jesus loves them and died on the cross and can save them. And they, I, I believe many of them are saved, but the hope is taken away. Go to Acts 28. Sad picture. You study Acts 27, there's a lot of parallels. You could unpack that chapter for a long time. I just want to give you a few. 28, 25. Now here we are at the end. The door is slammed shut on the nation of Israel. In case they didn't get it, Paul slams it with a thud. He invites some Jewish leaders to listen to him, and it says, And when they agreed not among themselves, they departed after that Paul had spoken one word. Well spake the Holy Ghost by Isaiah the prophet unto our fathers, saying, Go unto this people, saying, Hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand. And seeing ye shall see, and not perceive. For the heart of this people is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes are they closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, and that they will hear it. The door is slammed shut, and Paul is quoting a prophecy and a judgment from Isaiah 7 that God levied against his people. Jesus Christ quotes it in Matthew 13 when he puts the kingdom in mystery form. It's saying, you're going to see the words, but you're not going to see them. You're going to hear the preaching, but it's not going to register because blindness in part is going to come upon you until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And there's the warning and the judgment of God pronounced against the nation that the door is shut on them for now, and he's gone to the Gentiles. So, that was the book of Acts in a little bit. I'll give you two big ideas now, two big ideas. First big idea in the book of Acts, all right? Let me erase this. All right. First big idea of the book of Acts, and I, I've said it a few times, but I want to just reiterate it. First big idea is the book of Acts. Please remember this, if you remember anything, is a transitional book. It is not a doctrinal book. It's a transition. See, what's it transitioning? Look at right there in verse 29. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had great reasoning among themselves. And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house. He was like under house arrest and received all that came in unto him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. By the end of the book, we started the book with Peter doing all the preaching. We end the book with Paul doing all the preaching. Peter's gone, right? He's mentioned in Acts 12. He's alluded to in Acts 15. He says a word in Acts 15, and he's taken off the scene pretty much. We go from Peter to Paul. We go from Jerusalem, the capital of the Jewish world, to Rome, the center of the Gentile world at that time, right, in the Roman Empire. So we've gone from Jewish, focus, to Gentile focus. And lastly, and it's not, I'm just giving you three here. We've gone from kingdom of heaven, political, visible, literal kingdom, to Paul preaching about the kingdom of God. Spiritual kingdom. Invisible kingdom. That's a big change. You can't just put your finger in the middle of Acts. It's moving. It's changing. You can't build doctrines when the doctrine is always changing. It's dangerous. Think about it. I showed you Acts 2.38, right? In Acts 2.38, you're baptized and you get the Holy Ghost. In Acts chapter 8, the Holy Ghost comes upon people when the apostles lay hands on them. Acts chapter 10, the Holy Ghost fell on a guy for just listening to the Word and believing it. How do you get the Holy Spirit? Right? right? You've got to wait till this whole book transpires and you get to Romans. Then the doctrines are set. By the end of the book of Acts, then the doctrines are set because God has played His hand. Jews have rejected Him. So God moves His direction, settles it in. Then we move into Romans, and then we get the doctrines of the New Testament church. Okay? That'll help you. Second big idea. The book of Acts reminds us that it's the Lord who works through His people. This is more devotional. I want to end with something like for your heart a little bit. If Jesus Christ is pictured as the worker, then it's Jesus Christ who's going to do the work in the church today. And let's go back to chapter 1. I'm just going to throw some things at you. I'm not going to 
uh, look at all these verses, but I'll throw this at you. All right. <clears throat> what kind of work is Jesus Christ doing in the church today that he does in the book of Acts? Well, in verses 2 to 9, we see he's our commander and instructor. He's telling them what to do. He's giving them instructions about the Holy Spirit, how to move, how to act, what order to take. So he's our commander and instructor. Verse 24 of chapter 1, it says, And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen. You know what he is also? Number two, he's our guide in moments of perplexity. They're like, Judas betrayed us. What are we going to do? God, we've got to have somebody pick up the mantle. We're supposed to have 12. I mean, we're going to be sitting on those 12 thrones in the millennium, and you're coming back, so we need somebody to take that 12th seat, God. You know who it's supposed to be. Jesus Christ is the one that guides them. Number three, 233. It's Jesus Christ who bestows the Holy Spirit on us and on His people, right? Chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. Again, I'm not looking at all these verses. I'm just giving you some things, some work that Jesus does. He commands us. He guides us. He bestows the Holy Spirit to us. In, verse, in chapter 3, verse 13 to 15, He is the subject of all our messages. Everybody's preaching about Him because He's the subject of all our messages. I, I, I fancy that Chris is going to preach tomorrow night at the mission, Lord willing. I'm sure He's going to mention Jesus Christ as the center of what He says. It's not going to be about Him or about our church, about their good deeds. It's going to be about Jesus Christ, right? We go on the street, we preach not ourselves, but Christ crucified, right? That's who we preach. That's the subject, right? It's not us. It's not our church. It's not our good works. It's not a nice fellow that you are. It's Jesus Christ. Acts 8, Ethiopian eunuch. What is this about? And then Philip, at the same scripture, preached unto him Jesus. That's the subject of all our messages. He is the subject. He's the subject of all our songs. He's the subject of all our messages. And if your song has a message that's not Jesus, I'd reevaluate that song. If the song is about you and not about him, that's a man-centered song. The songs we sing should be about him and his work, not you and your heartache. If you meditate on him and his work, it might help you with your heartache. How about chapter 2, verse 47? You know what else work he does? Praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. It's He's the one who builds His church. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. Right? I will build my church. Now we witness, we can hand out a thousand tracts, 10,000 tracts, 10 million tracts. If the Lord doesn't open that heart and someone doesn't respond to Jesus Christ, you can get people saved, but you know who builds the church? He builds the church. He builds people up to build the church. Like Pastor Mel said, I didn't come here to build a church. I came here to build Christians. You build Christians, and God will build the church. Amen. 3.16. 3.16. <clears throat> and his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom ye now see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. You know what he also is? He's our partner in service. The faith by him. We preached. We did this miracle. But guess what? It was his faith. And Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Get in the yoke with him, and he'll partner. He'll shoulder up with you if you'll shoulder up with him. What a Savior. Chapter 9, verses 3 to 6. <clears throat> and as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. You know what else Jesus is? He's the agent of our conversion. Who really turns you? Who really saves you? Jesus Christ. His Spirit, Him pleading with you, Him working on your heart. You know, you've all got different testimonies. You know who's the one that got you saved? Jesus. Amen. Not the church or the preacher or the evangelist. Jesus saved your soul. Amen. His spirit pleaded with you. His words jumped off the page at you. The cross became real to you. And he is the one that saved you. Like he saved Paul. He said, Paul says, who are you? I'm Jesus. And there was a moment in your life when you realized, who is that man on that cross? Or who did, you know, what is this all about? I remember seeing a man on a cross. I saw that big crucifix. Like Eli saw one in, in was it Jerusalem? 
right? You all saw him at one point. He said, who is this man really? I've heard about him, but who is he? And when you saw that it was Jesus, a man that died for your sins, that's what saved your soul. And then finally, Acts 23, 11. I'm just showing you that it's Jesus doing all the work. <laughs> He's the worker. Acts 23, 11. Finally, and the night following, the Lord stood by him, meaning Paul, and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou also bear witness also at Rome. You know what else Jesus is? He's the encourager of his tried ones. Paul's arrested. Paul's like, what is going on here, Lord? God rolls up next to him and says, don't worry, Paul. You may be arrested, but I'm still going to use you. And Jesus Christ, when we're going through hard times, he's the encourager. Oh, a phone call from a brother feels good. A, a text from a sister feels good. A card from a sister is lovely. The church praying for you is wonderful. But you know what really helps your soul? When the Lord speaks to your soul and says, be of good cheer, Pat. Be of good cheer. You, you got, I still got work for you to do. So, if Jesus Christ is the worker in the church, you know what we should do? Get out of the way. Let him work. Amen. We'll talk a little bit about that on Sunday. <laughs> I will do it. <laughs> Get out of the way. Let him work. Because he's the one. And we've lost that. And Pastor Mel saw it 30 years ago. He said, if you took the Holy Spirit out of most churches today, you go 75% of churches would just keep going right as if God wasn't there anymore. Because we're not leaning on Him like we should. Let's let Him work. Father, we love You tonight. Thank You, Lord.